So as humans, we have spent the last 200,000 years in a very physical and analog world. We have been working with our hands, creating tools, working in the fields. But this has changed in the last 20 years with the arrival of uh, emails, social media, or the smartphones. We call that the space digital transformation. And we kind of adapted to it, thanks to the effort of thousands of designers, engineers, psychologists, entrepreneurs. Now the digital world is an integral part of our daily lives. We use apps for finding jobs, for making our jobs, for keeping memories, for finding our partners. But the problem that we have is that our brain actually evolved in a physical world. And we're a little bit like this frog here. What that means is that we have uh, fundamental problems with the digital media. It's like comparing meeting somebody in real life with meeting somebody through social media. It's very different. Digital experiences are just the shadows of the real ones still. But slowly, there are new technologies which are helping to mix these two worlds. And it will actually even evolve more in following years. So imagine a world where you almost never get sick, where you wake up in the morning and you go with your morning rituals, you wash yourself, you go to the toilet, and just through those daily rituals, the system is able to see the patterns, is able to guess if you are going to get sick in a few months, or it's able to see if your diet is balanced or not. That may be able to even create a customized treatment that keeps you healthy and strong for a very long time. Or not even your physical health. Think about your mental health. I mean, the system may be able to understand what makes you happy, what stimulates you, what is your mental health. So it can, it can understand you better than yourself. It could maybe, if you are a little bit down because you have had a breakup, it could create a, a gathering with your friends or it could bring you to an event. It's a little bit creepy, but it can actually help you if it is well designed. And this is becoming real. So we know and we have been hearing during the festival that we are in the verge of this very big technological shift where the internet is beginning to weave itself into the fabric of reality. And the future is going to be, in some areas, for the people who opt in, a complex layer of digital and physical. And it will create a continuous connected experience. We are still far from there, but we are getting close very quickly. I mean, if you think about some of the last companies which have make, made an impact, things like Amazon Alexa with the voice assistant, or Alibaba with the store where you can just pay with your face, or even the cars, the motorbikes, the bikes that we are now finding distributed around cities that you can pick from some place to another, that those technologies are belonging to this mix between the digital and the physical that is coming together. And this is precisely what we are calling spatial transformation. And this is where the tales that we will call tell about. This spatial transformation is what happens when instead of interacting always through technology, with technology, through phones or laptops, you begin to interact with it in a more holistic way. Like it's, 
ambient, you don't almost even realize. And this is beginning to be possible precisely for the breakthroughs in these technologies. Like augmented uh, artificial intelligence with things like machine vision, gestural control, conversation UI, and the advances in mixed reality. But there is a big problem with that. It's not going to be that easy to harvest all the benefits of it. We, many people would get lost. Some companies or organizations will not be able to jump in this train, or maybe some of them will actually jump, and they will, they will summon demons that could destroy the world. And that was the reason why we are here, to try to avoid that, right? So one of the first challenges is to create technology with a purpose. This may seem obvious, but it gets forgotten all the time. So how can we create, use these technologies and this power to solve real people's problems, to solve problems that actually affect the rest? Because if we learn something from Jurassic Park, is that just because you can, it doesn't mean you sold. Then the second issue is that how can we get to interact with this new wave of technologies? 30 years ago, we were interacting like this with computers. Now it looks like it was hundreds of them, but it was a very clumsy interaction. You will have to type there. We are used to mouses, to touch screens now, but those were very big novelties at this time, and we still don't have a mouse to interact with artificial intelligence or a touch screen for that. And the third one, which is actually one of the, one of the most creepy ones. We all, we may have, you may have heard about Cambridge Analytica probably, and how right now we can be, our online behavior can be tracked in a way that we can be micro-targeted by people that may want to influence our votes or our behavior, what we want to do. They claim that they have even influenced an entire vote in the United States. I mean, for me, that's a little bit of an overstatement. They wanted to create the, the, the image that they had that power, but it's not yet there. We are still at the very beginning of that uh, manipulation power. But on the other hand, uh, you may have heard about an experiment that Facebook did back in 2012. In this experiment, they curated the posts that people would see in their walls. So they could increase the number of either positive or negative posts. And then they will measure how the mood of the posts that people will write themselves was affected. They didn't see a very big influence, but they managed to find that there was a correlation. And that actually proves the fact that we can be manipulated. So we can imagine... Okay. We can imagine that if we have our online behavior tracked, it's something like this, kind of like the point of the iceberg. We actually did this just for this talk, so I hope that you enjoyed that. That's just the point of the iceberg. But if you can have your behavior, not only your online behavior, but knowing where you are, who you are with, what your conversations are about, even the mood of them, actually, there is way more behind. So imagine the power of these technologies if we are not careful in the way that we are using them. So basically, the big three challenges that we have to overcome to make them useful are, on one hand, we will have to make them feasible, 
we will have to <laughs> we will have to have the desirable part of the feasible future. We have to make it usable, and we have to be responsible. And it will be in that bull's eye where we have to have our work towards these technologies. Yeah. Thank you. So let's start with the first uh, tale of spatial transformation. Um, this one is entitled severe, severe Tire Damage for a reason that will become clear very, very shortly. On November 18th, 1994, the Rolling Stones, that's not them, were preparing to stream live on the internet for the first time in history. They were going to become the first band on the internet, or so they thought. Actually, half an hour before the Rolling Stones went live, a virtually unknown band from California called Severe Tire Damage, that's them, <laughs> took over their channel to play their own songs and steal the show. Severe Tire Damage was composed of Silicon Valley pioneers from Xerox Park and Apple, and they had actually been broadcasting their music online for more than a year already, and they were not going to have any other band steal their title, not even the Rolling Stones. The drummer of the band was this guy, Mark Weiser, and besides opening for the Rolling Stones that once, his other claim to fame is that he is the inventor of ubiquitous computing. This is what we call today the Internet of Things. Weiser coined the term ubiquitous computing in 1988. And to him, that described a future in which invisible machines would be embedded in every object, eventually going so far as replacing personal computers. As Weiser puts it, machines that fit the human environment, instead of forcing humans to enter theirs, will make using the computer as refreshing as, talking, as taking a walk in the woods. We're 30 years later, and his vision hasn't entirely come to pass, but we can see the influence of his thinking in things like Amazon's new uh, vision of the future of shopping, Amazon Go. The promise is simple. You just get in, you pick up whatever you want, and you walk out, and it gets added to your shopping cart, and you get charged, and you don't have to do anything. No waiting, no checkout, no nothing. But how does this work? Well, cameras hidden in the ceiling of the store are actually tracking your every move, and every time you look at a box of cereal, or every time you pick up a bottle of shampoo, some bit flips in a database somewhere, and your purchase habits are being logged for later use. The price of a seamless experience, as always, is your personal data. Computer vision is the Swiss army knife of spatial technology. It can be used to recognize objects, to track people's motions. It can even, even do fine hand gestures for augmented reality, for example. It powers self-driving cars, it powers VR, it powers countless of the technologies we are going to rely on in the next 10 or 20 years. 
This is why we shouldn't be surprised when data-hungry companies like Google are so eager to sell us live-logging cameras like the Google Clip. And even though Google themselves gave up on glasses for now, um, others have picked up where they left off. Snapchat, in spite of the poor sales of their first model, just released a new version of their camera uh, built into glasses to record videos and take pictures on the go. Cameras are giving eyes to the internet, and through them, machines are getting better at understanding us, at scanning the world around us, labeling it, segmenting it. They are bringing about uh, a new web. This new web is physical, it is contextual, it's semantic in the real sense of the world. It's a spatial web, not just an internet of things like Mark Weiser envisioned, but the operating system for reality itself. So here's another story. About 10 years ago, I attended a conference by Spanish magician Juan Tamariz. Uh, he's very famous in the magic scene uh, for being a top expert in the art of misdirection. I was 25 and I made my pocket money by doing card tricks in bars in Paris and Tamaris was one of my heroes, really. And so I was very excited for that night, as you can imagine. On the evening of the conference, I joined 30 to 40 people in a small basement all cramped up in the in, uh, theater, magic theater in Paris and as the evening progressed, I witnessed Juan Tamariz completely mystifying a room full of professional magicians. And they were sitting, and we were sitting right in front of him. To be perfectly honest, the technicalities of the tricks kind of flew over my head, but I did learn something really important that night. That is, no matter how trained you are to recognize the tricks, you can't avoid getting fooled. Yet in our relationship with technology, we routinely underestimate how easily we can be fooled. As Tristan Harris puts it, we need to see ourselves as having certain buttons and can be pushed. Our social approval, our belonging, Facebook owns my sense of approval right now, and I think he's speaking for a lot of us. This is a very exam interesting example of what we, are, we were just discussing. <laughs> Social networks hijack our social instincts and use habit-forming mechanisms that keep us coming back from, for more. You can take Snapchat and there are snap streaks, for example, that gamify conversation and um, turn them into a kind of competition for who is the best of the best friends. And even if you are aware that this is happening, you can fall for it. So now imagine what happens when these sort of tricks start applying to real-world interaction between people. In a fully networked society, as we've seen recently, our individual weaknesses accumulate to expose larger groups to all sorts of dirty tricks. Large-scale social engineering can be used for corporate interests, for political purposes, and sometimes it just occurs accidentally as the unintended side effect of seemingly harmless design decisions. And that brings us to our next story. We entitled it The Pencil. In 1998, some schools in the state of New York distributed uh, to their students pencils as part of a campaign to keep young people away from drugs. 
Maybe some of you know that story. It was doing the rounds on the internet for a few years. Those were bright orange pencils with an inscription on the side reading, too cool to do drugs, all caps. It was the 90s. So, so far, so boring, but the pencils had one small problem. Can you guess what it was? <laughs> yeah, it took a fourth grader to realize that when you sharpened the pencil, the sentence started reading, cool to do drugs, then even worse, do drugs, and then finally just plain drugs. <laughs> the pencils were recalled, as you would expect, and the spokesman, uh, spokeswoman for the company that produced them said, we're actually a little embarrassed that we didn't notice that sooner. <laughs> Let me repeat that. We were actually a little embarrassed that we didn't notice that sooner. To me, this statement is a perfect metaphor for what is happening on the internet. We connected the world at all costs until we were left with the unintended consequences of poor design decisions that we should really have noticed sooner. Unfortunately, unlike with pencils, we cannot just issue a recall. Spatial transformation will bring behavior manipulation into our physical space. It will amplify it further, and as digital technology merges with the physical world, so too will its influence. Through augmented reality, voice and gesture interaction, wearable computing and connected objects, the internet will pervade every woken moment, influencing our behaviors in subtle and often invisible ways that will make fake news look like child's play. The earlier we abandon the illusion that digital content somehow lives in a virtual dimension separate from the physical one, the better equipped we will be to face the challenges of the next decade. We have to spread this knowledge and have an informed public debate about the impact that spatial technology is going to have on the world. We've seen the price of moving fast and breaking things. Maybe now it's time for us to move with purpose and try to fix them. As we slide into the hybrid world of spatial transformation, we get a chance to learn from our mistakes and avoid repeating them. Another very important aspect of the future of spatial technology is that it opens, again, the opportunity to rethink the way that technology helps us go through discovery and growth. This is mainly because these kind of technologies may be very intrusive in our daily lives, but the role should actually be to augment our capabilities. Steve Jobs used to speak about the computer as a bike for the brain. And even the defunct Google Glasses were tapping in that direction with the, with the research of people like Steve Mann from the University of Ontario about wearables. He, they wanted to actually expand our cognitive capabilities, our memories, but it proved that it's not that easy to make. And this brings actually another little story to my mind. I used to live in London some years ago. And after a year or something like that, one night that I was going back home after a few pints in the pub, my phone suddenly died. I mean, I was so used to Google Maps that I really didn't know what to do. I knew that I was close to home, but not really how to go there. So I tried to calm down, let the panic pass, 
and try to assist the situation, okay? I knew that more or less the direction that my home should be, so I just began walking towards that. And just a few minutes later, I find myself in this amazing, beautiful pond. That was so beautiful. I, th I made a photo. It was just next to my home. <laughs> that was really, really impressive. How, how could have I missed it for over a year? I mean, the reason was that I had been following the Google Maps instructions because it was just not in the most efficient way to work or to any of the other places. And that was so sad. So, so I, after feeling sad and recovering, we thought, how could we? And how could we, for example, in this case, design a system that, as a good teacher or as a good parent, helps us to grow? It nudges us in the right direction, but it helps us, it allows us to make mistakes and grow. So, you may actually come to the same idea. This is actually pray that we did some time ago, what we end up creating was, uh, was this. This is a device, this is called Heiser, and it works like a compass. But instead of pointing north, like a normal compass, it will just point to your final destination. It's designed to give the minimum amount of information. So it doesn't overwrite your sense of direction, telling you turn right, turn left, turn right, turn left. No, this system needs you to collaborate. It needs you to look up and to look at the streets around you, to make an active decision about where to go. And it allows to make mistakes. But ultimately, if you follow it, you actually arrive to your destination. It's, again, like, a little bit like a good parent, that it allows for growth and discovery. And this is an example of how, by limiting the amount of information, sometimes you can achieve a much better a much more compelling experience. And the idea is clear, to have a healthy relationship with these new technologies. We need to collaborate, not to be overwritten, because these artificial intelligence and spatial technologies, they are going to be almost omniscient. They are going to know maybe what is better for you or not, but they need to let you and let us make mistakes and learn, because if not, the world is going to be a much more boring place. And this actually brings us to another last step, which is about relationships. Because I'm sure that you're beginning to realize that our relationship with technology is becoming more and more closer to the relationships that we have with people. We are going from a change of human-computer interaction to human-computer relationship. These new technologies help to make products which are more flexible, that knows about the context of the user, that evolve, that learn about what you like, what you don't like, that they actually make mistakes and learn from them. If you think about all the recent breakthroughs in natural language processing or natural language production, there are many objects which are beginning to have a personality to a certain extent. So, just an example of this, a little bit of a mental exercise. Imagine a company, a brand, that you may like. And how could the personality of this brand be in Alexa? Right? I mean, maybe the first thing that came to my mind was, oh, okay, it will be Scarlett Johansson. Right? I mean, for everybody who has watched the film here, you know a little bit what we're speaking about, the kind of relationship that comes. The problem is that 
not every company can have Scarlett Johansson as their voice or as their image in a place like, like Amazon Alexa. And what we mean with this is that the relationship that we are creating with technologies are going to be more subtle, a little bit maybe stronger, but definitely a bit more emotional when they are becoming into your real life. And they will have to have the same characteristics that they have in good human relationships. Because if not, they will not stick. Think about what makes a good relationship with a friend, with a colleague, or with a partner. I mean, it needs to make your life a little bit better. It needs to feel natural, like that kind of click that makes you feel that you have known somebody for a very long time. And very important, you have to trust the other side. Because imagine that your friend writes down everything that you say and reports it to somebody that wants to sell you shoes or that wants to influence your boat, like Alexa. I don't know, but it's a relationship that probably will not last for a very long time. It's not a very trustful relationship. And having, having a healthy relationship, it also means that everybody has to make some effort. In this case, it means us, the people, the users, we need to be informed and be critical about what is done with us, not just be responsible about that. We need the policymakers to take care, to prevent misuses of it. And we need the companies and the designers to be honest. We need them to communicate and to be transparent, because that is key in almost every relationship. It's about communication, it's about transparency, because that's the only way that we are going to trust these new technologies and that they will actually be able to provide all the advantages that may, they may bring. So what spatial transformation is bringing is, as we've seen, more than just uh, a more tangible version of the internet. It is really a new medium. And as with every new medium, we will need time to uh, build an understanding, get the intuitions, get the vocabulary right, and be able to discuss, debate, be critical. It is a chance for us to reinvent our relationship with technology, to learn from our mistakes. Technological trends come and go, but truly profound technology just become part of the background of our reality up to the point where we don't even consider them to be technology anymore. Really, the only constant is our human nature. We're human, we worry for our future, we fall in love, we care for others, we want to spend time alone, we want to feel someone's embrace. With all the technology in the world, we are and remain vulnerable monkeys trying to find a sliver of meaning in a cold and potentially empty universe. If we are to find meaning, we need new standards, business models and policies that track more fundamental values than the short-term goals and needs of people. And they have to use more helpful metrics than user engagement and time spent. Values like responsibility, exploration, patience or community. This is not easy. The sense of meaning and self-fulfillment that we create in our lives is not simple to measure. Number of clicks and page views won't tell you that. Yet we must do it for the sake of everything that we care about and that makes life worth living. 
Thank you very much. Thank you.